Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. This week we are joined by one of our generation's greatest investigative journalists, <laughs> who joins us today in his private capacity as a keen observer of the American dream, or should that be the American nightmare, to tell us what it all means that Joe Biden has turned up to a test without his pants on. Here is Jason Wilson. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Thanks, Cam. Yes, I'm just here as a Portland everyman. I guess just to begin with, America, an empire in decline, or is it doing just fine? The jury's out. I, I think that I don't want to get into cliches about a divided nation and all that stuff, but it is striking that different parts of the country seem to be on completely different tracks. I mean, a really good and succinct example of that is on Friday, two judges in federal court made a ruling on an anti-abortion drug. One issued an injunction, one in Texas, I believe, issued an injunction saying that the drug had to be withdrawn from sale and the federal government had seven days to appeal. But basically, by default, that drug was not going to be available to women around the country or folks who don't want to get pregnant around the country. The other, on the other hand, in Washington state, a federal judge issued a ruling in precisely the opposite direction. And how you how you reconcile that? It, it, you know, so in other words, yeah, you you brought suit, but this thing must stay on sale for now until we've we've proceeded further. So you've got different parts of the country really going in really different directions, and the real points of contention at the moment are obviously abortion. Since the Supreme Court last year ruled that 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 was a matter for state legislatures to deal with, it was no that Roe versus Wade had been overturned. And also issues around LGBTQ rights and particularly transgender rights and the real campaign that we've seen against transgender rights, which is bearing fruit in states like Idaho, which is not so far from me, and in states in the lower Midwest and the South, like Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, a lot of these state legislatures have passed laws that severely limit and wind back whatever rights transgender folks had until until recently. So there's a kind, I think, far be it from me to accuse liberals of complacency, but <laughs> I think there is a certain amount of complacency about what's happening in red states at the moment because Democrats are in the White House and that they can cushion some of that with federal law. 
right? But there's going to be a Republican in the White House again eventually, even though this campaign against trans rights that I was mentioning is not uh, popular, electorally popular. They're not going to let it go anytime soon. I wanted to ask you about that because in Australia, we've seen with the Catherine Deves campaign at the last federal election, which killed the Liberals in seats around where they ran her. We've just seen at the last state election, the last by-election recently here in Victoria, that just proximity to Moira Deeming in the Liberal Party is being blamed by some for why the the Liberals have lost a, a famously safe Liberal seat. This stuff isn't really popular electorally here. It doesn't seem to actually be that popular in America either, but why are they going to stick with it? Well, I think it's really important to understand the really different dynamic that American electoral politics takes on because of the primary process and the fact that in order to be a candidate at a general election, you have to pass through a primary election that in most states is uh, each party selects its candidates. There are some states like California and Washington State where they have what they call jungle primaries, where a field of candidates from all parties competes and the most popular two go through to the general election. And often in California and Washington, that will mean two Democrats running off against each other, rarely two Republicans in those states. That's another topic, though. But in most states, the Republicans select their candidates for general election. And in order to win a Republican primary in the early 2020s, you have to stake out a range of radical positions. And in fact, you have to compete with the other people you're running in the primary election against to stake out tougher and tougher positions on transgender rights, for example, or what materials are appropriate to be in school libraries or on critical race theory. If you want to see that writ large, you can see Ron DeSantis squirming around trying to stake out positions to the right of Donald Trump. And it's difficult because Trump is unpredictable and incoherent. But DeSantis's political successes have really come from playing to the moral panic du jour amongst conservatives in his state and appearing more radical and more committed to those positions than anyone else. And, and that plays out in local races for ordinary congressional seats, for example, all over the country. And what that means is that in Australia, the, the selection of candidates is mostly left to the parties themselves. Compulsory voting and preferential voting do have a, they do tend to drag things towards the centre or they do tend to, I've got to be careful here because Australia has had some pretty extreme positions on things like immigration. If an issue isn't particularly salient, like transgender rights, for better or worse, it's not particularly salient. If If you're seen as being too enthusiastic about issues that aren't top of mind for voters, being seen as extremist relative to the, the general political climate doesn't always pay off in Australia. Generally, it doesn't pay off, right? And so it's very, there's a strong centrifugal force in Australian electoral, electoral politics that, and it's more of a centripetal force in American electoral politics, at least through the primary processes. So would someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene be pre-selected as a Liberal Party candidate in Victoria, say. I mean, or even in Queensland. Lovely Queensland, my, my home. Maybe not. There's also a, a safety valve in Australia, right, in the sense that one nation is... And, and, and I'm talking from the perspective of a stable, stable liberal de democratic electoral system, right? Like, there's a safety valve in allowing minor parties to exist and, and to now and again 
climb seats in the Senate, climb seats where the, where proportional representation exists. Minor parties effectively don't exist here. And so those extremist urges then find a place in the Republican Party and by means also of conservative media, which tends to try to get ratings and get viewers and get fans by staking out positions to the right of legislators, the whole thing gets dragged to the right. So I think that another thing to say about it is that I had a great conversation today in relation to a story I'm working on with a guy called Andrew Lawrence, who works at Media Matters for America. Now, I don't want to blow my story. We were talking about, I guess, why trans rights have become such a a salient issue so recently in the United States, you know, in the last half decade, whereas even when I arrived here, it just sort of really wasn't on the map in the same way. I mean, I wasn't, I'm not saying that there weren't transphobes and there wasn't a lot of transphobia on the Republican right, but it wasn't organized in the same way and it wasn't directed at electoral politics in the same way. And Andrew put it to me that Media Matters for America, who he works for, are really concerned with monitoring conservative media mostly and he in particular is a but but as a matter of professional necessity he's a tucker carlson buff and his thought is that we've seen them cycle through victims throughout the sort of post-trump era victim classes scapegoats so now it's trans people at one time critical race theory was top of mind at one time, MS-13, the, the kind of Honduran, I, I believe they're Honduran originally, or Honduran-American criminal gang were whipped up as this threat to civilization. Migrant caravans to the border, they, they've cycled through different scapegoats and, and right-wing media's function there is to, to make something more salient to an audience that is predisposed to taking that ball and running with it. And realistically... The audience for conservative media is disproportionately white, disproportionately old, disproportionately of, of lower educational attainment, and there's a symbiosis there between conservative media and them, and, and they are also, the, the Republican base is like the same disproportionately old, disproportionately white, disproportionately of lower educational attainment kind of folks. It's the same people. And so it's a vicious spiral, really. Yeah. And whether or not what they're saying is appealing to a general electorate. I mean, for, for political candidates to survive and flourish, they've got to be talk, talking about the same things that Tucker is. Now, Jason, speaking of dragging the GOP to the right, and speaking mm -hmm. of being dragged on the right, Laura Loomer was put forward as a potentially working for the Trump campaign. She recently complained that she was the victim of a public humiliation ritual after Marjorie Taylor Greene had a go at her around that. Do you think she meant she was part of a Masonic humiliation ritual? Laura Loomer, I mean, the interesting thing about that fracas is that Loomer is still really beyond the bounds of, of respectability in US politics. I'm not I, I can't imagine what Trump's thinking. Maybe he's just trying to get attention. Laura's a super fan of his, so maybe she just like talked him into it. Maybe he sees something in her that the rest of us don't. Whatever. Who can say? I mean, he had he had his dinner with Nick Fuentes and Kanye, you'll remember. I mean, I, I think the guy – I think it's fair to say that the guy likes the limelight and he likes attention and is, is reasonably skilled at getting attention. The interesting thing is – though, is, is Marjorie Taylor Greene's response. Now, 
no doubt there's authentically some bad blood there, but it also gave her an opportunity to depict someone else as an extremist, I guess, to depict someone else as 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 being completely irrational in their politics and in their behaviour. And, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene was pretty key in allowing the current speaker, Kevin McCarthy, to finally get elected after however many attempts earlier this year. I think it was at least half a dozen, which was a humiliation, really, for him. But she helped to get him over the line... He seems to like her. He's spoken, he's made a point of speaking well of her in interviews with national newspapers. Uh, so it's the interesting part of that is that she's a person who is now in the process, I think, of being legitimated. I mean, she got a, an interview on 60 Minutes not more than you know a week and a half ago, I think. That, that's someone who's being sort of processed into the political establishment, right? And And... That's the striking thing, I think, about that exchange. It's not so much Loomer and Trump. I mean, you know, who who knows whether she'll actually be employed, how long she'll last, whether Trump's actually going to run. There's a lot of balls in the air with Donald Trump at the moment. But yeah, I, I think I think that like the Tea Party just over a decade ago, like all the people who got elected in the Tea Party wave, which... Correct me if I'm wrong, I think that included McCarthy, have all become normalized, I guess, and have become part of the establishment. And now I think MTG's on her way as well. I mean, we could be in 10 years hearing people talking about her as some moderating force in the caucus. Or as President Green? Who can tell? Certainly Speaker Green is within reach. Jason, as we all know, the Donald was successfully able to build a wall to keep out all the bad people from the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. Um, sadly, he faces the prospect of being put behind walls himself at some mm-hmm. point. What do you make of his current legal difficulties? I've I've read a lot of commentary on this. and I've talked to some people about it. I actually talked to a former prosecutor who... On on background, so I can't tell you who they are, but the impression I'm getting is that the the indictment in New York is not is by no means watertight. Let's just put it that way. It's it's not a lay down misere by any by any means that he's going to get indicted, and that's not because I I hasten to add that that's not because he hasn't engaged in criminal behaviour. It's because you need to you need to prove that, and you need to prove it to, to a degree of seriousness where. There's meaningful consequences, and for various reasons, it, it, it seems like some of this stuff is going to be a heavy lift for the prosecutor. But that's okay, I think. I'm sure that people in, in New York have gone to prison for far less serious charges without getting the due process that Trump is no doubt going to get. There is there is all of this stuff, all of this savvy commentary about how other prosecutions should have been brought first, that there's... There's got to be some kind of coordinated strategy between prosecutors at different levels of government about who has the best case first. Because if if Trump doesn't get convicted in this first prosecution, he's going to argue that he's been exonerated of everything or something. And that commentary really gets my goat, I guess, because it sounds like people are saying that they're accepting that at some point Trump is going to get a free pass on crimes that prosecutors have reason to believe he's committed 
that that's just part of the, the landscape. That's part of the game of US politics. And I think that the United States, it's, it's, it's media anyway, and it's commentariat and it's political class seem uniquely allergic to the idea of putting former holders of executive power on trial. Makes Australian- me think of Chomsky's remark about US presidents and Nuremberg. I, I didn't I didn't see it. What did no? he say? Oh, yeah. Some years ago, he made the comment. Oh, I thought yeah. you meant recently. No, no. Yeah. But Go as ahead. Uh, yeah, no, as you were saying, it, it's Trump being who he is. Whether or not he'll be actually convicted of the crimes he may or may not have committed is uh, you know a very open question. But Chomsky, in talking about international affairs, I suppose, argued some years ago that every post-war U.S. president, if they'd been subject to, to something like the Nuremberg trials, would have been hung. Yeah, I, I mean, I could go for that. I mean, certainly, probably since LBJ. I, <laughs> I, and I mean, maybe He's not. He's a crusty old professor. Come on. <laughs> but maybe not. But, but I mean, if, if there's reasonable, if it's reasonable to prosecute those folks for, for, for crimes they, they may have committed, we, we should do it. I, and, and I'm not saying that political leaders who've gotten to be heads of government in in Australia or the UK or other comparable liberal democracies. I'm not saying they don't enjoy a certain amount of impunity compared to the average citizen. Of course they do, but it does happen. I mean, Joe Bjorka-Peterson went on trial in my youth and he got acquitted in a trial that was had some very dodgy aspects to it, but it's salutary just to see them go on trial. To, to me, it's healthy for democracy that if, if a leader is can be reasonably suspected of having committed crimes, that they do go on trial. And it does happen in Australia. It does happen. It happened, it's happened in New South Wales in relatively recent years. When was the last Victorian Premier that went on trial? I can't remember. Dan Andrews was judged harshly in the streets in recent years. John Cain did go on trial? Maybe not. Anyway. I think so. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, yeah, they seem uniquely for a republic. It's almost like their president, with without any kind of constitutional basis, seems to attain this sort of the legal immunity that some in the past some countries might have given to a king. Right? I mean, it just seems it seems crazy. But look, I I think that I don't know if you saw yesterday yesterday as we speak. So Sunday. Trump just started melting down on Truth Social. He j- he made one post that just said World War Three, and there was a whole bunch of other stuff that seemed to be referring to the prosecution over his handling of classified documents. And people were speculating today that perhaps that's advancing as well. So I think he's likely to face other prosecutions. But of course, you'll probably be aware that Eugene Debs, the socialist, ran for president from prison. So it, it may not stop him running. There's certainly there's certainly no bar to him running while he's being prosecuted or, or even if he's convicted and, and imprisoned. There's no constitutional bar to that. So he may run anyway, but he seems to be, for now, also milking it for political donations. So yeah, we'll see. I, the I think wait and see on the New York prosecution. It, it doesn't seem to be a lay down, Mazer, as I said. We could see our first president who's also a shot caller for the Aryan Brotherhood. Yeah, he'd probably be a, a likely recruit, wouldn't he? Now, Jason, can I put something to you? Yeah. I'm looking at the website of Comic-Con, yeah. where, which is coming up. Signings, merchandise, giveaways and more. And yet liberals want to make both collecting 
and giving things away illegal. If we look at the case of Harlan Crow and Clarence Thomas, oh. w- what do you make of all of that? Oh, boy, so, so, so many thoughts. I think it's amazing that you had this string of conservative pundits and journalists on Twitter like going out on a limb to defend this guy for, for collecting Nazi memorabilia and for having statues of dictators in his yard. And, of course, they've all been to his house. <laughs> and so have a bunch of Democrats too, by the way. So there was something circulating today. The current minority leader in the House, the Democrat, I've forgotten his name for now, Nancy's replacement. He apparently spoke at Harlan Crow's whatever it is, mansion, castle. I don't know. I, it, it's it's all very kind of sorted. I, I believe that the, his family made their money on real estate. They're in Texas. It seems like he collects statues and, and Nazi memorabilia and, and pundits. <laughs> and, and it seems like he's able to buy a, a lot of loyalty as a result of that. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know that I've seen anything like the stuff that's come out about Justice Thomas and his wife and their relationships with the hard right, really, and the conservative movement and the kinds of conflicts of interest that have arisen out of that. I mean, I think that there is, whether or not there is corruption at the highest levels, there has been corruption at the highest levels of the judiciary in the Supreme Court or in Australia's High Court or, I don't know, whatever, the Privy Council or whatever they have in, in the UK, they, there's usually a really big effort at maintaining the appearance of propriety, right? Even if, as in the Supreme Court, the thing's been stacked politically and is engineered to deliver certain outcomes, usually you don't find justices engaging in this obvious, easily discovered impropriety. And when I say easily discovered, I don't mean to at all diminish ProPublica's story, which was a tour de force. But yeah, I, it's, it's very strange. The other thing it made me think of, and this is slightly more of a tangent and perhaps an, an autobiographical tangent, was that I remember when I was a youngster in North Queensland, and, and there are a number of military memorabilia stores in, in Townsville, which is a, a garrison city, I guess. I don't know if that has anything to do with it or if these things were just more common. And I remember that those stores used to just sell Nazi memorabilia quite openly and didn't seem to have a problem. And and, and that gave me, I, I guess that, that gave rise to a certain sort of, I won't say optimism, but I, I'm happy that it's become more problematic and more more of a black mark to actually collect this stuff and, and think that it's a cool thing to do. I mean, it was clearly never a cool thing to do, but but for whatever reason, at one time, it seemed to be pretty common and pretty p- people were pretty okay with it, as I said. I, I don't know if you two have observed that in Victoria as well or – well – wouldn't be allowed in Victoria, in in the Maoist Republic of Victoria, would it? But- well, th- there was a shop in Melbourne that was selling that kind of thing fairly recently, but some angry customers attended the shop and convinced the shop owner that he should take his business elsewhere. So, Yeah, that's that's good. I mean, on another note on that stuff, I remember I was in conversation with a Dutch journalist a couple of years back because she was covering – some trials of some young guys who had been saddled with t- terrorism-related charges. I mean, at the lowest lowest level, but nevertheless, terrorism-related charges because of their involvement in 
accelerationist groups. I think this was Fjordkrieg division specifically, although one of them was maybe in the base briefly as well. Anyway, one of them was, well, there was a whole problem with the prosecution for this guy because there were doubts about competency and what have you. But I, he was convicted in the end with, with some low-level charge. But he, he had been an avid collector of Nazi memorabilia. He, he was showing it off in the chats. And, and, and knowing that, and, and that is something that comes up across those subcultures. Like that is a, that is a trophy, something to show off. If you have an actual Nazi relic, that's something that it brings kudos in those subcultures. And so knowing that and to have, God, I don't know, Jonah Goldberg saying what this guy's collecting literally Hitler's possessions and things signed by Hitler in order to remind himself about how bad Nazism was. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of, I, I'm able to remind myself of that without having a signed copy of Mein Kampf. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't. I guess I don't buy that as a motive for collecting this stuff. Yeah, I think you, you could also you could also <laughs> just get a, a non-signed copy, even. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to understand it, yeah, you, you check it out from the public library, maybe, or it's probably on the Gutenberg project or something, right? You can probably get a PDF somewhere if you want to. If you want to, yeah, you could you probably know, jump on Telegram. And yeah, yes, I can, certainly, quickly. certainly. But like t- to have the actual, like almost like a religious relic, it just doesn't seem. It doesn't seem like you should need that forceful of a reminder that that Nazism was a, was a bad thing. I don't know. Yeah. A little <laughs> just one brown, guy's opinion. Little brown lipstick <laughs> mark on the cover page, Jason. We've recently had. Uh, I'm I'm going to have to ask you to cast your mind back several mass shootings because it seems that we're back in the swing of things in the states. There was just one today at a bank, which seems to have thrown people for a little bit of a loop because they already have security guards. There was a a shooting recently at a a Covenant school, which was, it seemed to be perpetrated by a young trans man, AFAB person. Mm -hmm. And this has generated significantly more interest in mass shootings and the cause of them from the right than we typically see. I was wondering what you've observed in relation to that. So the Colorado Springs shooting, the perpetrator of that claimed in the wake, claimed transgender identity in the wake of that. Now, this is obviously a fraught area in terms of saying someone isn't, isn't authentically, that's not authentically their identity. I mean, that's, that's, that's something that transphobes say on the reg, right? But it seemed, it's, the evidence seemed to be thin on the ground that this person had at all previously claimed that identity. But that that became a real rallying cry because that was such a terrible I mean, not that we're ranking mass shootings here, but that was that was such a shocking and terrible, terrible crime that, that this suspect claiming that identity meant that the right were immediately able to wed that to the campaign against transgender rights that they've been running for half a decade, but intensely for a couple of years now. And and I think when that, they, they already had a playbook a couple of weeks back when, when, when that shooting happened. And well, one thing I noticed about that playbook is, yeah, that disinformation or trolling or whatever you want to call it, playbook kicked in and before there's any information about the shooter people were already saying they were trans but they were getting it 
they were going the wrong way. They were saying this is a trans woman because this was the narrative that they were looking to push. And then when yeah. it turned out that this person actually is trans, they were very confused. But, I mean, to me, it relies on a so, – so they're trying to – they're trying to – I think in their mind, they're trying to mirror what happens when people point out that this guy committed a mass shooting because he's a white nationalist who hates Muslims or, or, or people of color or whatever. And this ideology led him to commit this targeted crime, again, that, that targeted the people who he's he said in his manifesto or online or whatever that he actually – hates and, and thinks are going to undermine Western civilization or whatever, right? Or or play a part in white genocide. Okay, so so that's saying that someone has embraced a genocidal ideology and that's led them to commit mass murder, right? Like that that's connecting those two things. I don't I don't think I don't think people say I mean I wouldn't say that that someone has done that b- because they're a white cis man, right? Because lots of white cis men, myself for instance, get around every day without committing any murders, right? It's not like, that's not to say that, that, that gender is unconnected with, with violence, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I'm, not, I'm, I'm also saying that it's not simply their identity isn't causing that. Maybe other things that their inhabitation of that identity and the way that that identity has been appealed to by various political actors has played a part. But it's not just because just because they're a white man, a white cis man. And and on the other hand, you've got the right saying, well, they did it because they're a trans a trans person, like because they are transgender, and and that doesn't that doesn't make sense. And then if you if you poke on that, you either get this idea that. That, that transgender identity is ipso facto some form of mental illness, which is transphobic, like <laughs> definitionally, right? Like it's saying that 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 transgender identity isn't real, among other things. Or you get this idea that I don't know the the various forms of gender affirming care are sort of inimical inimical to mental to to, to good mental health. That, that that somehow either the treatment or the kinds of things that they hear from counselors when they're when they're getting gender affirming care are are pushing them into a mental illness with homicidal characteristics and and there's there's really lots and lots of lots of really good evidence that the opposite is true that in fact gender affirming care improves mental health outcomes for transgender people that it improves their prospects of avoiding things like suicide and 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 it kind of gets them out of harm's way. There's lots of evidence for that. Lots and lots of evidence. And every major physician's body in the country says the same thing about that. And then they've got to account with that for that with a conspiracy theory. But more immediately what I'm saying is that it's just not the same, right? It, they think it's like a tit for tat thing, but it's not the same to say that this guy embraced white nationalism became increasingly radical and shot people for political reasons. It, that's just not the same as saying, oh, they shot someone because they're trans. And that's what the right's doing. And it just, it's, it's just scapegoating. And I, I, and I don't think, I don't think saying someone did something because they embraced a, a murderous and genocidal ideology is scapegoating. It's, it's trying, it's pointing to a, a social and political pathology that we have it's not <laughs> i don't know it just seems like it's not it, they, they're not really getting it jason 
transphobia has emerged as a mobilising and organising principle for the right in America, but they're not the only people who are critical, gender critical, of transgenderism and so on. In Melbourne recently, we were blessed with the presence of uh, Posey Parker on the steps of the parliament. As Cam referred to earlier, she was joined by Maura Deeming, but also a small collection of local Nazis. Can you talk a little bit about what kinds of alliances are forming or have formed in the United States that are helping to propel anti-trans sentiment and even shape laws in the United States? I could talk a little. I'm working on something in this area and and the specifics, I don't... I need to report out the specifics and get that into really good shape. But I think in general terms, I think around the world, right, But and certainly, yes, in the United States, what we're seeing is people who are prepared to collaborate with elements of the far right, and that means a good chunk of the Republican Party here, they're prepared to collaborate with them in enacting laws and generally propagandizing against transgender rights, and and on the basis, they say, of, of radical feminism, right? On the basis that transgender identity is not real, and, and more than that, a, a lot of these folks will say it's the tip of the spear of some misogynist backlash or the last gasp of patriarchy where they're just trying to get that that men, as they see them, because they don't accept that transgender women are women, that men are trying to get access to women's spaces in order to sexually assault them or rape them, right? Or that that men are trying to compete in women's sport in order to sort of like devalue the achievements of women and girls who are athletes. That's that's what they think. Um, the extraordinary thing, and I, I think it takes different forms in different places. I think that in the UK in particular, there's a very sort of complicated and nasty situation where a lot of prominent older feminists are with pretty decent platforms have managed to maintain the respectability in big inverted commas the respectability of transphobia i mean i think that that like the idea of trans transgender identity like is it real or isn't it like is is still something that is 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 a debate in in mainstream British media outlets. It's it's less except for these these radical feminists, self-described radical feminist groups in the United States, it's really mostly the preserve of the right. Like a commitment to transgender rights is is pretty much, I would say, a, a mainstream liberal position. Certainly the majority of the Democratic Party, up up to and including the president, will at least publicly affirm some some they will affirm some. They will make some affirmation of transgender rights, even if they don't offer too much detail about policy and what have you. So, yeah, you've got the situation here, perhaps uniquely, where you've got both a pretty successful anti-transgender rights campaign, which is seeing laws passed, seeing lawsuits taken out, seeing advocates um, get a lot of prominence, especially in conservative media, to to make their case, and that's having real world effects. But it's entirely partisan, except for this collaboration with people who, for really long periods, were were probably identified with the radical left. So one example is the Women's Liberation Front here in the US, which really comes out of, I guess, infighting, right? I, I, I don't want to say that. It, it's people who were previously identified as, as, as being on the radical left who maybe showed themselves by 
their actions, particularly in response to the the question of transgender identity, and who are now collaborating with groups who we list as hate groups who would, if they had their druthers, would criminalize homosexuality and would severely constrain the rights of women. And the extraordinary thing is that um, that doesn't seem to matter, that the antipathy that some of these folks have to transgender people is such that they're prepared to set aside any other principle that you might expect them to defend in order to reduce or eliminate the rights of transgender people to live authentically. It, it, and and that's, that's sort of horrifying, but, but sort of fascinating that, that, that a monomaniacal political commitment can drag someone from provocations at anarchist book fairs to, I don't know, going on Tucker Carlson or framing model bills with, or, or appearing at the Her- Heritage Foundation or whatever. It's, it's quite extraordinary. I, I know it's not unprecedented, but it's always surprising to see someone set aside every principle in order to pursue this antipathy, that obsessive antipathy. I don't know, but you guys probably know other examples of this, right? Like, it just—it just seems, yeah, it—it—it's—it seems extraordinary, even though it, it has probably happened before. Yes, politics makes for strange bedfellows. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of other disreputable characters, Jason, a little while ago you wrote about Rob Rundo and Rise Above <laughs> movement. Rob, Mr. Rundo, as I understand it, has been arrested and is looks set to be extradited to the United States to face charges. Along with his legal situation, I'm wondering, especially given the appearance of Michael Nazis at Parker's publicity event in Melbourne, Rundo, in advocating for what he terms, I think, active clubs, seems to provide some model for fascist organising, not only in the United States and Romania, but Australia and elsewhere. Do you think his arrest will have any impact on that network or that movement? And where do you think, I guess, the vanguard, in a sense, finds itself in the United States and elsewhere? I think you're right about the provision of an example or model, but I, I, I think it's – my sense is that Rondo, his his example is pretty much all past tense. I mean, I don't – I know that he has active clubs. I know that there are people attached to his movement who are also attached to Patriot Front who are capable of producing slick propaganda. I know that there are people in the movement and 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 too many in the sense that there may be dozens of these folks, mostly I think in Southern California and the immediate surrounds. But I also think that... I mean, like Patriot Front, I, I mean, the interesting thing about Patriot Front is that the kind of Republican right, who I, I'm not trying to suggest, are, I'm not trying to suggest that they're moderate or anything, but, but they, need, they have certain needs in terms of respectability. Persistently, the Republican right, I think at least since 2020, whenever Patriot Front shows up, they will try to portray Patriot Front as like an FBI psyop or something, like, like they're feds. And and that's a willful ignorance, but it's also a reflection of the fact that this this optics thing is is still an issue, and that the groups that actually want to go out in public in uniforms with masks on, and and the the groups that are 
evidently primarily interested either in violence or in a kind of fascist spectacle, openly fascist spectacle, there's still problem, right? Even even if they mobilize people, even if they basically agree with the, the far right of the Republican Party on, on most of the issues, the aesthetics are wrong. And whereas the the GOP can get behind Kyle Rittenhouse because there's, there's a... Uh, a narrative there. There's not any evidence of a political organization around him. There, there are issues that they can get behind in terms of Second Amendment rights and in terms of this idea of self-defense. Killing someone in self-defense is fine. But people like Rondo and um, and his organization and uh, Thomas and Patriot Front, uh, it, it's just – it's still, I think – it feels like they've been deflating really since since Charlottesville, really. I mean, look, the membership in Patriot Front might wax and wane, but I think that the pool of people that those organizations are, are, are drawing on is not growing or at least not growing quickly, that there's so much radical energy in mainstream right-wing politics at the moment. I mean, if you want to show up somewhere and 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 yell at at drag queens you're probably going to be shoulder to shoulder right with your local congressperson or or with republican party activists anyway and the idea of sort of violence for violence's sake the idea of this esoteric theory that that the sort of bronze age pervert sort of recycled nietzschean stuff that that, that rondo mouths and thomas thomas russo's slightly watered down fascist aesthetics in his posters and stuff. It's just not – I just don't know who that's appealing to at this point, except I think in Rondo's case, people who are really prim- prim- primarily motivated by violence, and it's it's really evident that they are primarily motivated by violence. And the main sort of part of the right in the US still needs a, the space to disavow violence. That, that would be my take. But I don't know. Do you have other thoughts? That sounds like a reasonable assessment. Jason, it's difficult to know given the nature of the flux in US politics, but I also wonder to what extent, like I watched something the other day about a a church in the United States that was holding a drag queen event. It had been subject to all kinds of threats. The church had previously been, there was an attempt to burn it down and so on. It took a defiant line, organised to have this activity. And I think for the church, or the, it's spokespeople. It was a matter of principle that this that they were not going to tolerate these sorts of attacks. And I noticed that the people who gathered outside to protest were drawn from, I think, a, a group like Patriot Front or some other equivalent along with men waving Nazi flags and uh, members of the Christian right. So I think in terms of the, because the anti-trans sentiment seems to be centred on a minority current on the ostensible left, or among feminists, and on the other hand, in a much larger and broader sense, on the Christian right in the United States and elsewhere, it seems to be in the absence of conflict on the streets, in other words, clashes between those who are seeking to disrupt these events and those who defend them, it would seem that in that context, that would be the best situation or scenario in which a a militant group, a a vanguard for the anti-trans movement, could emerge and take the fight up to those who were defending trans rights. But I don't know if that's happening in a concerted fashion. It seems to be 
a lot of the conversation in the United States seems to revolve around the presence of the Proud Boys or some equivalent. I suppose it was dramatised in Melbourne with the appearance of the small collection of Nazis. But then on the other hand, when Posey Parker went to Hobart, she was met by a very large crowd who had booed her off stage, mm-hmm. basically. And then, of course, when she went to Aotearoa, she had a really bad time. So, but then again, in the wake of that tour in Aotearoa and New Zealand, it's it's the consequences following that where obviously those who took part in the protest and, and someone who allegedly poured some tomato juice on the speaker yeah. and so on is being prosecuted. And there are concerns about not just the events themselves, but the, I guess, ambience that cre- that's created around them, which tends to encourage more violent expressions of anti-trans sentiment. So it's not, I suppose it's not necessarily the case that they're needed in order to encourage any concerted effort or more concerted effort to criminalise, marginalise transgender communities. And it seems that the, the violence is somewhat organised, but also because the sentiment is f- spread among millions of people, there's always yeah, been one of them no, to, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I And I'm not... What I'm what I'm not saying is that the fact that Rondo has deflated that 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 means that there's not going to be violence at events that have been organised around scapegoating some group right that that organised right wing protests aren't going to culminate in violence at some point that I'm not saying any of that at all and I think that that that. You can totally envision. I mean, they do want to leave room for 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 Kyle Rittenhouse, right? And and the Texas governor Greg Abbott is is promising. Now he doesn't have it totally within his gift, but he's promising to pardon a guy who's just been convicted of murder for for first running into a bunch of protesters, and then when one of the protesters approached his car armed with a firearm, there's this guy shot him dead like so and 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 the Texas governor wants to pardon this guy i mean and he's not as far as i know this guy's just doesn't identify as anything except a trump trump supporter or republican so i'm not <laughs> i'm i'm not counting that out and i don't think that i i think it's just that to some extent and at the very broadest in the very broadest perspective, to some extent, Rondo's carry-on, which I think he thought was clever in, in the sense that it, it pitched a kind of masculinity rather than an overt, although it was it wasn't covert either. But but it, he led with hypermasculinity and with with this kind of exercise cult stuff. He probably thought that was clever. But but in the long run, I think that a lot of that stuff that that grew up around that time in 2016, 2017, has actually proved to be self-marginalizing to, to an extent. And that could be because of the aesthetics. It could be because they so quickly got into, allegedly, in Ramadan's case, criminal violence and gave people every reason to people on the right every reason to use them to legitimate themselves, like with the people saying Patriot Front are a fed op, right? Like they really gave people on the right the opportunity to say, well, we're okay because we're not we're not them. And I think that that's the problem Posey Parker had too, right? Like that I, I think that that was not only the, the National Socialist Network showing up at her thing was not only so 
discrediting to her, but it was mobilizing, I think, to, to people at those future events. I don't know if you agree with that. Maybe there was going to be a big counter-protest anyway, but it seems to me like there was some relationship between this evident link between her and and neo-Nazis that, that, that really caused a problem for her over the remainder of her tour. And, and so they can't Things can change, as you say, and I think in the past, Republicans or, or the, whatever, the Republican right, just for shorthand, here has been far more tolerant or welcoming or collaborative with Proud Boys than maybe some of them are now. I, I'm not saying that stopped completely, but, but there wasn't really even a barrier, I think, at one point in 2018, 2019. I think now it's it's something that people can throw at them since since – Gen six and what have you, and and so it will wax and wane, and they'll they'll I'm sure that in another time they'll they'll welcome people who are close to Rundo in terms of the way they operate. Those people will be more will, will face less problems than they do now. But I think, and and really, I I guess I was commenting on Rundo specifically too. Mm. I, I think that he's. I mean, I don't know. I can't see the future, but I wouldn't want to be. Him or his lawyer, I, you know, I think that like, especially now that he has been a fugitive, and as I, I found that he was on the no-fly list. I don't know if you saw that story. Like, yeah, yeah. So, I think he's done. Really, yeah. I mean, I also think of if you want to promote hypermasculinity and misogyny, then you could look to someone like Andrew Tate as opposed to Robert Rundo. He has much more influence in terms of inculcating boys with those sorts of attitudes, whereas Rundo's not at the opposite end of the spectrum, but I guess one of the persons who's attempting to cohere and organise that sentiment among young men into some political movement, but because they extol violence and domination so much, it's a risky proposition. Yeah, and and I think also, I mean, he was responding to a completely different context, right? Like he he broke big, as it were, at at the Berkeley protests. I mean, they had been active in Southern California before that, but like, really, they were their promise was that they were going to go beat up some anti-fascists, right? At at these anti-Trump protests and anti-Milo Yiannopoulos protests that were happening, it was specifically directed at anti-fascists. Who themselves were responding to the the kind of provocation that, for whatever reason, the right has become less interested in trying to trying to pull off, at least as a headline thing. They seem to be more interested now in showing up at hospitals and school board meetings than trying to have speakers on campus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's a different it's a different set of circumstances, and it's not clear what he could add to. I protested at a children's hospital other than uh, putting a bit of a target on the people he was claiming to show up to support. Yeah. Just in that context, Jason, how are things in Portland? Pretty quiet. You know, a lot of the local Proud Boys were caught up in January the 6th. Um, not least Ethan Nordine, a.k.a. Rufio Panman. So he's been sort of marked as one of the ringleaders. And he's an example of someone who used to come to Portland all the time and Seattle and and didn't seem to even be a leader at that point, seemed to be more rank and file. But I think that that, well, he was in Portland the time where he punched that anti-fascist and that became a viral video amongst these guys. And that act of violence 
I, I was told by a couple of people with some inside perspective, I guess, that that massively enhanced his prestige. And then he was one of the people leading the march into DC on Jan 6. And so that's that, that in the Pacific Northwest, either those folks have been prosecuted or they're keeping their heads down. And to some extent, I mean, I'm not saying there's nothing going on, but there's no one organizing marches into Portland. I think that there's a kind of visible legacy of the many, many months of protest in the wake of the murder of George Floyd that happened in the city. I mean, I think Portland really held the line longer than anyone else in terms of nightly protests for for many months. And that happened. And then I think through COVID, a lot of people became unhoused for various reasons. And some of them came to Portland because the services here, as, as inadequate as they are, are better than a lot of other cities. The weather is relatively mild. And also, let's not kid ourselves, I'm talking like these people are coming out of town, but a lot of people became unhoused in Portland. And the fact of the matter is that while unhoused people in Portland are often characterized by people who want it would like to crack down on them in some way as as having come from out of state or out of town. There's every reason to believe that a, a really significant proportion, if not a, a, a great majority of these people were once housed in Portland and they're, and they're just in the city where they, they used to be housed. So that happened and the downtown area now is less trafficked, really. It's it's fallen into some disrepair, I would say. There, there are businesses have left buildings. There are, there are windows that have gone unrepaired for a long time. The Apple store downtown had a had a gigantic barricade. Put they put a gigantic barricade around it because it's all glass walls. And the barricade was allegedly to stop anyone making a statement by putting something through one of the windows. <laughs> but yeah, and so there's a kind of it's the same mayor that failed to deal with these far right incursions is in the, in the in the chair now. He's on his last term. They're term limited to two terms, so he'll be out in 2024 without getting bogged down. I mean, he's a son of privilege in this state. His his he comes from a family who had sort of timber barons, even though he's a Democrat, he's he's what passes for old money in a state like Oregon. And he's failed to deliver on keeping the city safe from those right-wing incursions on sort of have coming to some accommodation in the downtown area between people who are trying to access services in the only place where they really exist and, and from people who live and work there. The only ideas that he's really come up with are either punitive or the latest one involves paying some Californian nonprofit millions and millions of dollars to run a very small, tiny home encampment when local organizers from the ground up working with houseless people had had created tiny home encampments where people had access to shared bathroom facilities and what have you. But they were allowed to be, one of them at least was allowed to be shut down by the Neighborhood Association. So in the city of Portland, there's this sort of, they've allowed this way for organized nimbyism to really be fed into the heart of city government because neighborhood associations, which are formally constituted bodies with representatives of the neighborhood who 
you know, have some kind of say, if not veto over city policy. But yeah, neighborhood associations have been pushing out that kind of organized response. So all that people have really now is they need, they need to camp wherever they can. And that makes them visible and vulnerable and a political target for the right. So yeah, it's it's a little bit of a yeah, it's it's there's not the contentious street protests that there were half a decade ago that, that really characterized that period. It's more just like neoliberal failure manifesting itself in people people sleeping rough in the middle of the city, a dilapid a dilapidated downtown that was at least in part dilapidated by another failure, which was the failure to restrain the Portland Police Bureau. And the Portland Police Bureau were incredibly, were allowed to be incredibly violent in response to racial justice protests, including towards reporters, and used gas weapons and batons and irregularly. But they somehow managed to escape any blame for what's happened to the downtown area. They apparently had no role in that whatsoever. So that's where it's at. It's just this little bit children of many, uh, <laughs> like a little bit of a sort of a, there are there there are whiffs anyway or glimpses of that neoliberal end stage dystopia for sure. And I think that's the case in 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 most of the cities on the west coast, even though they're all they're all governed by ostensible Democrats, by, by, by liberal Democrats even. Just to close on a non-dystopian note, Jason, I thought I might allow you, I might allow you to enter a little area I like to call Schadenfreude Corner. Matt, Matt Taby. Oh, boy. Your thoughts? I, I, I mean, the, the one thing, well, the first thing I'll say about Matt Taby is, is all this happens and you go back and you read the stuff about the, the financial crisis and the vampire squid and all of that stuff reads a little differently in retrospect, doesn't it? Like reads as like, like there are, there are, are there hints of something in there that I didn't notice at the time, like a sentiment that I didn't notice at the time. Anyway, we don't want to get into anything that we might. Yeah, we want to keep it broadcastable. But I, I think that it's extraordinary. It's really extraordinary that he's effectively ruled himself out of Twitter now, right? Like he's effectively left the platform. At some point, at least, Elon Musk made it impossible to search for the, the Twitter file story that he seemingly fed to, to Toby. It's not just that he sold out in the most craven way, but like, it just all fell apart so quickly. It's extraordinary. I, I, I don't know what. But the, the thing is, I don't know how he thought it was going to. It was going to end. I mean, maybe it's ended as he wanted it to. I'm sure he's got a bunch more subscribers and a larger fan base, almost exclusively on the right. But at this point, maybe again, it's a little like it's a little like Wolf that we were talking about earlier. I mean, maybe at some point he realized that he was sort of out of options in terms of appealing to a left or left of center audience and and just decided to double down on the reactionary elements of his politics that were already always there I think to some extent I mean I it's a thing I would ask about Glenn too I mean whoever said that those guys were actually on the left I mean I think I think in both cases it's a product and with Assange as well for that matter it's a product of that that time, you know, in the years immediately following the Iraq war where you had people who 
call themselves on the left, even making eyes at Ron Paul. Like, like there was this sense. Some people's defenses were down to the extent that anyone who was anti-war was well, that that was someone who who could be an ally because it seemed like that more neoconservative right was so powerful that anyone who was prepared to say that they opposed the war and and Glenn wasn't even consistent on that. But anyway, anyone who said that they opposed the war and maybe after the financial crisis too, a little later, anyone who was prepared to speak out against finance capital. Was was an ally of the left, but we all know that <laughs> you can be against foreign entanglements and bitterly opposed to finance capital, and 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 in no way be on the left, right? <laughs> in any other respect, let's just put it that way. And I I don't I don't know. I mean, you would hope there would be a lesson in there somewhere. I I just don't think that question. People seem to be asking what happened to Matt Tybee, what happened to Glenn Greenwald, and. Maybe nothing happened. Maybe circumstances just changed. I think they're both now in this space where they're just trying to draw attention to themselves to expand an audience, which is really just entirely on on the right at this point. But maybe people on the right who don't want to see themselves as in in, in terms of a certain right wing caricature at best. But I mean, I, I don't know what you think. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about that phenomenon and whether you think I'm right. Like that at some, that, that people just misconstrued opposition to the war and an, uh, an opposition to finance capital or a distaste for finance capital as evidence of a broader, a broader set of agreements when it really probably wasn't. Well, just briefly in response, Jason, to your question, I think. Matt Tarby was the exile, yeah? Yeah. And when I first encountered it, I was not impressed. So yeah. I've remained unimpressed and I associate Greenwald with Matt Hale, his role yeah. as a defence lawyer. But I think, like, to oppose war is a thing and... Oh, it is, yeah. It's a good thing in many ways. Mm. Uh, I think in terms of judging those characters or personalities, I think if there's an appeal on that basis or a misunderstanding as to their identity or credentials or perspectives as in some way related to the left or coming from it seems to rest on a certain ignorance and historical and political illiteracy. Mm. So I think that the, insofar as there's a cure, it's to educate people about history and explain how and why it is the case that someone can be opposed to a particular war but not necessarily be an ally or a comrade. or <laughs> and, and, yeah, I guess it does to some extent parallel the situation with various other coalitions that form and I don't know. I mean, I'm not – I guess I have the benefit of not being invested in those individuals or their pronouncements. So, in a sense, I see them more as being products of the entertainment industry than uh, any kind of uh, grassroots left project I understand. But then that's, I mean, I don't know. I think I was, that's been my position for a very long time. So, that's kind of Yeah. I mean, um, you say say that people should attend to history, but the point, the really good point you made, in effect, is like, just just paying attention to their personal history might have been enough. Just 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 looking into their personal history or listening to people what people had to say about their personal history might have been enough at one at some point, right? Well, to, yeah. to to kind of think, well, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm misreading this. There might have been a few clues there. Yeah, and and yeah, not, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, 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 
wars bad but but there are things there are positions which are are necessary but not sufficient to being committed to the idea of human equality and 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 liberation and stuff like there's just like it's just even even if the circumstances seem dire yeah i don't know i i mean i think there's probably something about I mean, even Alex Jones seemed to get a pass for way too long. Maybe not on the left, but in the mainstream, let's say, just as a almost as a uh, because some people saw him tied to to alternative culture, like the, the maybe nineties, early two thousands model of that, where just being. I don't know, like just some sort of sense that someone's transgressive or opposed to the mainstream was was enough to to, to get people interested. And I think, I think maybe 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 the the, the exile people anyway maybe benefited from some version of that. I'm not sure. Well, Jason, I think we'll leave it there. If people want to find you on Twitter, the home of the Twitter files, you are at Jason underscore a underscore w and people can also read your work on the splc yeah and i'm trying to i'm trying to transition to mastodon now what is my name on mastodon oh yeah it's i'm jason wilson at jason wilson at mastodon.online so mastodon.online slash at jason wilson or one word i i I tried to transition to mastodon and then my mastodon server was shut down over harry potter drama and i have transferred but i'm finding it difficult that's hard. That 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 shut a lot of servers down. Mm. Damn you, Harry Potter. Well, that's it All for right. the week. We will be back next week. Until then, see you later. Bye bye. The girl of my dreams is giving me nightmares. I found her on TV. Now I see her everywhere. She's got style. She's got violent ways about. So that I can't dream without her She's giving me nightmares She's giving me nightmares She's giving me nightmares She's giving me nightmares My bedside is loaded My bedside's exploded Yeah.
Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Have you had your fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the Royal Children's Hospital are recruiting participants aged 18 years or older to receive a randomized fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose, either Moderna bivalent or Novavax vaccine, or be part of a control group and receive no additional vaccine. You will be compensated for your time and transport and will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. 